Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast. I'm your host, Frank Giles with Agnet Media. And today, as always, I'm joined with with Michael Rogers, the director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford. Uh, Welcome, Michael. All right. Thank you, Frank. Great. Well, we're just coming off the uh, October initial forecast from the USDA on the citrus crop for the coming season. And that number came in for all oranges at 20 and a half million boxes. Uh, What's your thoughts, Michael, on that on that initial forecast coming in from USDA? Well, I think uh, the forecast is probably in line with what most of us were hoping for um, was and that being an increase. We weren't necessarily certain exactly how big of an increase that would be, but uh, I think that, that equates to about 30%. And and given the fact that, I mean, we're coming off a hurricane, um, depending on where you are in the state, these groves suffered either a lot of long-term flooding damage, a lot of wind damage, and you don't recover in one year. And so uh, the, the increase that's forecast for this year is probably in line for what you would expect. Um, the first you're coming off a, a major hurricane event, um, and it's going to take a couple of years to where we get back to where we were prior to that hurricane. So I, I don't think anybody's disappointed. I mean, of course, we always want to see higher numbers, but I, I think it's a pretty realistic expectation, and and it, uh, it shows a good trend in the right direction for us. Yeah, and that's and speaking with some other growers since that number came out, that's sort of sort of the vibe I got as well. It sort of fell in within that that uh area that a lot of people kind of expected and again you know we're seeing those that crop move up and so it's moving in the right direction and so that's always a good thing and it was in you know all the categories of fruit too so that that's a positive and hopefully you know maybe we'll see that number tick up as the year goes on rather than tick down which has been the case in some recent years <laughs> that'd be that'd definitely be welcome <laughs> great well, speaking of that, you know, we've we've talked in previous episodes about uh, optimism out there because some of the new therapies seem to be uh, helping and helping with uh, fruit size, flush, and everything. So there is some everybody appreciates it. That's those therapies are kind of a short term bridge to getting to longer term breakthroughs, and that's what we're going to talk about today at a little more length than we normally talk about during the uh, podcast. And we're going to look at some of the uh, new technologies like CRISPR and biotech uh, approaches to developing HLB-resistant citrus varieties. And, Michael, I know you want to talk about these technologies, but also set some realistic expectations of what kind of timeline we're looking at here because it's some pretty – in-depth science beyond just the regular breeding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's important because a lot of growers, um, they're looking at the therapies that they're using right now, knowing that that um, things like trunk injections aren't long-term solutions to this problem. They're just buying more time uh, to keep the industry going. And, and so folks really want to know, you know, what is realistic? What should we expect um, in terms of, of timeline for delivering a new variety, um, particularly using CRISPR? There's 
a lot of interest in CRISPR or this, this gene editing technology. And um, uh, you know, we've made a lot of advances in that we'll talk about. But you know, realistically, how long do you need to wait before you know something might possibly be delivered uh, that would be of use to growers? And so I think that for today, what we'll try to talk about is you know um, start off talking a little bit about the background. Just I think it's important for folks to know how this works. You know, to explain how long it takes to develop these new varieties using CRISPR and a little bit about the process that's involved. Um, but then, more importantly, where are we now in the process, and and how much longer is it going to take? And and also, um, I'll kind of start to wrap up a little bit with about what we're doing in IFAS um, in terms of trying to uh, facilitate even more of this CRISPR research, trying to speed things up the best we can. I mean, there's certain areas where you just can't speed things up, but there are things we can do to try to do things, uh, multiple things at the same time to shave a little bit of time off here and there. Um, just so we can get things out as quickly as possible. Because I know that's what growers want to hear is, you know, that we're doing everything we can to move things along as fast as possible. And so, you know, I, I just start off talking about uh, the, the process, this CRISPR process. And um, this is going to follow uh, really along the lines of a presentation I gave recently at the Citrus Expo. And so, um, yeah, there are there's some slides that are available if folks want to go online and and see some of the the slides that I'm talking about where we have pictured uh, some of this work. Um, you can go to our website citrusresearch.ifas.ufl.edu and under the Citrus Expo presentations we have all the presentations from this year's expo that that is online. So you can either click on the videos or download PDFs of the slides themselves. Um, and uh, you probably don't want to hear me after going through this podcast, you probably want to hear me say this all again. So you can just download the PDF and look at the slides and, and get a pretty good idea of the process and what's all involved. But but the thing to start to think about is um, with CRISPR, with this gene editing technology, we're not starting out working with a green plant and transforming that plant. This actually starts much earlier than that with an actual a seed, an unfertilized seeds that are taken out of, of citrus fruit and, and we're obtaining plant cells from those unfertilized seeds and growing up those cells in a large quantity um, in the laboratory. And, um, and these plant cells, these citrus individual cells, have walls, cell walls that animal cells don't have. And so for us to be able to use this CRISPR technology to, to modify the genes inside those cells, there's a process that takes place where they'll remove the cell wall to obtain the protoplast. And when you hear people talk about a protoplast, a protoplast is basically just a plant cell that's had that wall removed. And so now we've got access to what's inside that cell. And that's when that's the stage where uh, this whole CRISPR technology is applied. And so the without going into a whole lot of detail here, basically the, these CRISPR, uh, uh, this technology, is used to go into the, the DNA in those cells and it seeks out the specific genes that we're interested in modifying. These would be genes that um, play a role in the disease symptoms. Um, so, uh, and it'll actually, probably the simplest way to say it is we say we'll turn those genes off so they no longer function and we no longer get symptom development. That's probably the easiest way to think about this. And so that's what uh, work that Dr. Nian Wong has been doing um, for about the past 10 plus years uh, is, is taking this CRISPR technology that was developed um, for other crops 
and actually fine tuning it and making it to where it can be applied and used um, effectively to do these kind of transformations or these gene edits uh, for citrus. Well, I think that's very interesting. I mean, that that really puts him on the cutting edge of this research in the world. I would think that'd be fair to say, right? Yeah, nobody um, nobody else has been able to do exactly what he's accomplished thus far using CRISPR in terms of, of citrus gene editing. Um, there have been a number of folks I can talk a little bit more about later on, um, even here in IFAS, who have used CRISPR to do some gene editing of citrus for HLB, um, potential HLB resistance. Um, but the techniques they've been using still are considered transgenic, um, where they're having to include some additional uh, foreign DNA into the cell. And so that, that requires, ultimately, when you end up with a transgenic plant, there's a lot more regulatory red tape you've got to get through to get that um, approved for release to grow in the environment. Um, but what's special about what Dr. Wong has done is he's used CRISPR to be able to do these gene edits in a way that's considered non-transgenic. And so they don't fall under a lot of the extra scrutiny and regulations that are required to get it released so growers can plant it in the field. And so Dr. Wong's actually developed three different techniques to do this. And um, and so it's it's really fantastic, the work that's been accomplished in what's, what may seem like a long time for, for growers um, from, the, from the scientists, the researcher side, it's actually uh, moved very quickly. Um, it's taken a lot of trial and error to get this to work but he has been successful. And so now he's using this technology, developing new lines of citrus that are non-transgenic or transgene free, we'll say, um, for disease resistance. And so again, we're starting back um, when, when they're doing this gene editing, it's happening at the cell level, a single cell plant cell. It's microscopic to the naked eye. You, you can't see it, you know, visually. So, um, and so when you think about that, doing gene editing on a single cell and then we're going to grow that cell up into a tree and so you can already start to figure out this is not a short process this takes quite a bit of time just to let the biology happen for that cell to divide repeatedly and grow into a, a functioning plant and so once those cells are edited um, they're put into petri dishes they'll go through a period of months that they're growing in these petri dishes. And it, it takes four or five months before you start to see something in those petri dishes that even resembles a plant that starts to you know, have green leaf material or plant material, anything that would look like it's something that's actually alive. So again, four or five months at minimum, just to start reach that reach the stage where you have these plant embryos that are growing in the petri dish. And so once we've got those plant embryos that are uh, ready to be um, moved on and, and grown further, uh, they're, they're placed into test tubes with, with uh, rooting medium. And uh, the, those, those embryos will put down roots that grows down into, the, into the, uh, that agar in the, or the gel, if you will, in the bottom of the test tube. So you wait another month or so, and then you start to see the roots go down and plants start to grow upwards and, and see the first signs of actual leaf tissue and a small seedling developing in those test tubes. But at that point, uh, they have to take that, those leaf tissues and the buds and then bud those onto new uh, roots um, in another test tube. So again, here's another month or two process. 
Um, you have to do that so you have a plant that has a, a, a adequate root system for these these uh, seedlings to grow on. And then from there, it goes through a process of just uh, transferring them to containers, if you will, in the greenhouse, in, in regular potting media. And then you have about another 12 to 18 months, um, like you would any nursery plant, from, from essentially from going from seed to get it up to a plant that's about uh, maybe a foot or more tall. And so um, it's a very long process to get from that single cell gene editing step to having a plant that's about a foot tall, that at that point, you're able to go and um, uh, run PCR on that leaf tissue to make sure that you actually have the right edits. You've edited the right genes in the plant. So again, from single cell to the time that you get to that foot tall tree, that process takes well over two years uh, to take place. And so um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of trial and error uh, early on when they were developing this method. So it took several years to get it to where it works. Um, and so the good news is is that you know now this 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 whole process is is working well um, for the the Wong Lab here at the CREC. Um, but it still has um, it's still pretty labor intensive because um, for all the plants that they do, only about one percent of the plants come back um, with the proper genes edited. So it's like you get one successful gene edited plant for every hundred that you attempt to produce. That's amazing to think about taking a single cell and, and turning it into a plant. Uh, just that process is is to visualize that is is pretty amazing. And again, I think the 1% uh, correct edits uh, just reinforces what you were saying at the very beginning about the, the length of this process, uh, because if you're going to take this to the field, it's got to be right. So, you, you know, you've got to develop those 1% into something that's viable in the future. Yeah. And, and at that point, again, so we've got these plants now uh, about a foot tall, and we know we've got the right edits made. So the next step is then to figure out, do they really work against HLB? And that, that's a big question. Um, so those plants, um, budwood is essentially cut off those, grafted onto the rootstocks, the liners in the greenhouse. And so then you have about another six months growing those plants up to where you have a, a, a tree the size that a grower would normally get from the nursery to go to the field to uh, uh, plant in the field. And so again, there's another six months, that's about two and a half years to get to the point that you're able to take it from the single cell to a tree that's ready to go to the, actually to the field. And then at that point, that's where we start to really get the data. Is this working? Will this hold up against HLB, our ultimate goal? And I think everybody recognizes that the time from the time you plant a tree, you know, it's gonna take about three years before you start seeing the fruit and get a good idea, is is the tree performing like you want? Um, obviously, we're we'll be collecting data in the field from day one, but uh, you know growers are going to want to have confidence. If if you know if if we release a tree, they want to see data and know that the, the the fruit quality, the fruit production is good, the trees are holding up um, to all the different stresses they encounter in the environment in the grove. And so again, that's another three years worth of of field data. Um, to to know does this really work against HLB in the field? So so it is a pretty lengthy process 
um, to get through. And, and the good news is, well, and backing up. So if you if you go from single cell again to the to the time we have data in the field, that process is about five and a half years um, to really know does it work. And and so the good news is that you know we're not starting uh, from scratch on this. Dr. Wong uh, has already developed a number of lines of plants and um, has been successful in uh, developing uh, the first sets of gene-edited non-transgenic uh, citrus. These are Hamlin plants, Hamlin orange, uh, that have been shown, to, at least in the, in the lab, under lab conditions, that are resistant to uh, citrus canker disease. And, you know, the reason, I think everybody's heard this before, the reason that citrus canker was the first one worked on was we already knew a lot about canker and the genes responsible for canker development, symptom development in plants. And so it was easy to go in kind of as proof of concept and be able to target those, those genes and uh, modify them so that the plants would be potentially resistant, as it appears they are, uh, to citrus canker. Um, and so those plants, um, they're now ready to go to the field. And um, uh, so they will be planted in this 2023-2024 field season. And, um, uh, and we're not only evaluating those in the field for citrus canker, uh, but we're also going to be evaluating those for um, HLB as well. Because the, the genes that were targeted do play a role in um, some of the stress responses, the ROS, the, the stresses on the plant that are also important for HLB symptom development. Um, so we, while we don't have data to suggest these plants are gonna be resistant to HLB, there is the possibility. So um, we're definitely, as these first line of non-transgenic gene-edited plants go to the field, we're definitely looking at those not only for canker, but for HLB uh, resistance as well. And while we wait this, this next three years to see these plants grow up and how they perform, we've already uh, provided DPI budwood from these lines uh, so they can start the cleanup process at DPI. And th that's important because we want to make sure we shave as much time off the process. Um, you know, if, if at the end of three years, we or two and a half, three years, whatever it might be, we see that, okay, hey, these plants are working great. And these are things that we think growers want now. We won't have to wait a year or two for the DPI to clean up the budwood. It'll already be ready and can then be uh, released to grow to nurseries to start propagating uh, for sale. So again, um, it's kind of putting the cart before the horse a little bit, but it's a way to shave off time. And um, uh, again, hope we're hopeful that that these plants will work really well in the field and be worth uh, uh, releasing uh, for growers in the coming year. So those are the first line of, of uh, transgene-free or non-transgenic gene-edited plants uh, that, that we'll be testing this year. Um, there's also uh, a number of other projects going on. I mean, we've got at least uh, six or more researchers in IFAS that many of our growers are familiar with who are involved in either CRISPR or other biotech approaches to developing new citrus varieties. I think folks know um, Dr. Fred Gemitter, Dr. Jude Grosser, uh, Dr. Manjul Dutt, uh, all here at the CREC doing work, um, whether it be uh, uh, traditional, more what we think of more traditional transgenic varieties, uh, conventional breeding, um, also using CRISPR to uh, uh, develop new varieties, although it be it through transgenic uh, methods, but um, also uh, Jeanne Deng from the uh, Gulf Coast Research and Education Center in Balm, 
and Dr. Zonglin Mo, who's a, a faculty member in Gainesville as well. So we've we've got a number of folks that are working on different approaches, different biotech approaches that we continue to pursue as well as CRISPR, because even though a lot of what they're doing may be considered transgenic, if it works as an industry, what we're hearing is that folks are willing to go that route uh, potentially um, using transgenic varieties as a way to uh, to manage uh, HLB. Absolutely. So that that work, I, I, I think from the grower standpoint, the transgenic might be a little bit more familiar. They've heard about it more over the years, but it's encouraging to hear that that research is going on in conjunction with CRISPR. And, and I guess when you're talking about genetics and uh, biotechnology, every little bit of this helps build the knowledge that helps these other projects grow and improve too, is my guess. Is that correct? Yes. And and that's really why um, a lot of the faculty who I mentioned who are, they're working on CRISPR related projects. Um, they, you know, it's been difficult to do it, non-trans, make non-transgenic gene edited citrus using CRISPR, but it's, it's much more doable um, through the transgenic route. And so they've, they've had a lot of interest in a number of different gene targets. And so they've used CRISPR to edit those gene tar- targets transgenically. Um, again, and in, in initially more proof of concept, can these genes, if we modify them, can they impart resistance to HLB? Um, but now, um, you know, if it turns out they work and those are available um, and industry's open to it, uh, we want to look at potentially releasing those as a, as a, as a short-term or, or possibly long-term solution for HLB management. So um, we just don't want to leave anything off the table. And we, that's what we hear from growers is that, um, you know, our industry suffering and, you know, we'll take what we can get right now. So there's a lot of field trials underway. Um, and I mentioned the work, the field trials, starting with Dr. Wong's um, non-transgenic gene-edited Hamlin. Um, there's also some work, uh, other, other CRISPR uh, edited plants that are considered transgenic. Um, like from Dr. Zhen Aldeng and um, uh, Fred Gumitter that are uh, going to the field as well um, with, with some different varieties. Uh, we've got um, Dr. Manjul Dutt uh, is working. He's doing some work looking at if you have transgenic rootstocks and you graft on a non-transgenic sweet orange scion, well, that if you protect that rootstock, can it, can it support that scion or maybe even impart resistance in the scion? And so those trials are going on in the field as well. And then there's a number of other uh, transgenic lines um, that are that have been in the field for a while um, and more that are moving to field trials. And one of those uh, that's been particularly interesting um, is some work by Dr. Um, Zonglin Mo uh, in Gainesville, who I mentioned earlier. And he's got a number of lines of, of Hamlin Orange and at least one line of Duncan Grapefruit. Um, that are considered transgenic, um, but they've been in the field. He's had uh, several different field trials out, some planted in 2019, others in 2021. And what they're finding is that these transgenic plants, while they do become infected with the HLB bacterium, they, they show little, you know, a much reduced level of HLB symptoms in the field. And so there's, there's some, a little bit of excitement there about those plants and, and will those 
be something that's worth uh, planting for growers. Um, thus far, they've not collected fruit quality data off those, and that's actually beginning this field season. So um, they'll be collecting the field data on fruit yields this year, fruit yield, fruit quality, and um, with the expectation that, that it should be um, uh, adequate and, and meet our needs. And so uh, while they're doing that, they've started the process of uh, petitioning um, regulatory agencies to deregulate these lines, these transgenic lines. And so this has never been done before for citrus. Uh, we, we don't have any transgenic varieties that are grown commercially anywhere in the world. And so um, we're not completely certain how long that, that process will take to get approval. And uh, but that uh, Dr. Dr. Moe and uh, Dr. Eric Triplett uh, from Gainesville um, are working diligently on that. And um, so I think we're we're all excited about that. And we hope that it works out because um, even if that's not the that's one variety, but, you know, it kind of sets a precedent for us. So it'll maybe make it easier down the road as we get additional transgenic varieties um, that will make it easier to get those through the regulatory process as well. Uh, especially if we can get this first case um, through and approved. So um, the other thing that we're doing right now, uh, yeah, I just that I just kind of mentioned some of the the field trials that are going on, and um, but IFAS is continuing to invest um, in our biotech area of, of citrus ver new variety development. Um, one of the ways that we've done this um, is, is through one of our, our partnerships in the industry, uh, uh, the Graves family. Uh, they A number of years ago, they established the Graves Eminent Scholar Chair in Agricultural Biotechnology. And many folks may remember uh, Dr. Bill Dawson was the uh, first eminent scholar in that position. And, um, you know, he retired a number of years back. And, um, you know, because of the big the interest in the industry to, you know, put more resources into the CRISPR work. Uh, we, we've met with uh, representatives from the Graves family and uh, everybody was in agreement um, to uh, move forward with that new eminent scholar chair uh, by naming Dr. Nian Wong to that position. And, um, you know, because again, Dr. Wong uh, is definitely a leader in, in this CRISPR research um, globally. And it also opens up some of the money that that, that eminent scholar chair endowment has. Uh, it generates uh, a certain amount of money each year, and that all that money that's generated will be going directly into the CRISPR research program to help speed up and facilitate the work that's being done by Dr. Wong's lab. So uh, we're, we're very appreciative of the Graves family and, and their uh, support in that way. Um, in addition, uh, we've also uh, doubled the laboratory space for the, the CRISPR research program here at the CREC. Again, that's the lab uh, led by Dr. Wong. Um, so essentially, he's got double the lab space now. Um, IFAS is investing in more equipment and more personnel. Um, so we have more hands, you know, at the bench working to do these gene edit edits and then grow these plants up. Um, so again, the money for 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 the equipment and people, uh, part of that's coming from UF. And, and thus far, we've also got a significant uh, portion of money that's that's been committed um, from the FDOC, the Florida Department of Citrus, uh, to help facilitate uh, getting some of this equipment in and getting things set up uh, for this lab to be able to expand or 
increase the, the amount of work that's getting done. Uh, so we'll be successful in getting more plants into the field to test for HLB resistance. Um, in addition, uh, to help speed up that process, you know, when I, when I talked about the process of going from that single cell to a to a larger tree that's ready to go to the field, part of that time, you know, there's 12 to 16 months that those plants are need to be grown up, you know, once they're budded onto rootstocks or the liners. And so we need ample greenhouse space or greenhouse space to grow those plants. And so um, actually, as we speak, a new greenhouse is being constructed uh, here at the CREC. Uh, a fairly large greenhouse that'll that'll be able to hold thousands of plants that will uh, then be able to be moved to field trials um, once they reach the right size. Um, in addition, we're also uh, building a, another cups, a citrus under protective screen structure, and and the and the purpose of this for for this CRISPR research is um, we want to be able to grow some of the plants uh, that are developed um, uh, in the field but under screen, keep them disease free. And so that can be a source of, of uh, plant material, budwood, whether it's generating more plants for field trials or getting getting large amounts of material to DPI budwood program for cleanup. And so uh, that's also being constructed and that will be completed, um, we've been told before March. So we'll be able to start planting those, planting some of the lines that are being developed uh, directly into the field to get, get more budwood uh, much more quickly. And lastly, the other thing that we've done in IPIS is uh, we do have a new field site set up for testing some of our transgenic materials. As I mentioned, um, there's, a, there's quite a few lines of, of potentially HLB tolerant or resistant material that are considered transgenic. Um, because of the, the government regulations on how we uh, work with those plant materials in the field, we have to have an approved uh, field site uh, by USDA APHIS. And so we've recently uh, gotten a, a, a new field site uh, uh, approved and, and we're starting now to uh, plant, plant our plants there, uh, transgenic plants, um, again, as another testing site uh, because we are space limited in the field where we do have uh, sites approved for transgenics. So, um, so that, that's a lot, of, a lot of progress being made, um, but again, I just wanted to kind of go through that because I think it's important for growers to understand that um, it's not something that happens overnight. Um, we have been working on this for, uh, you know, at least the past 10 years. Um, and again, we're, I know all eyes will be on the first round of these non-transgenic plants that are being planted this year and, and to see how they hold up in the field against both canker and HLB. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I think it's, it's good for us to step back sometimes, you know, we, we throw around uh, the scientific terminology and and those those terms, and I think this conversation was great because we kind of stepped back and kind of talked through what those terms really mean in a way that you know everyone can understand that's not a scientist. So I think that's that's valuable conversation to have, and also where you're talking about the screenhouses, the new trial sites, the cups construction that has to happen. A lot of times we forget about all of that that has to happen in the background to make make sure the science can transfer into the field eventually. So I think that was a, a really interesting uh, deep dive into this whole area of CRISPR and biotech. So we appreciate the uh, update. All right. Well, thanks, Frank. And I agree. I think it was good to be able to, uh, you know, set the expectations um, in the right terms so folks understand 
what's involved, how long it takes, and that we are making progress. So, um, and we're, we're moving as fast as we can, and we'll continue to keep folks updated as we get more data, uh, because we know there's a lot of interest in what's happening, and uh, hopefully the updates will be really positive. Absolutely. Well, with that, Michael, appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you again next month. All right. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.